We had watched this cauldron sort of boil to, you know, to the brim. We had all watched it. And we had seen, you know, the comments by Trump previous to that. We had seen him saying, you know, reporters had pointedly asked him, what will you do if you lose, you know? And he just could not fathom that concept. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. My guest today is Dara Star Tucker. Following the January 6th insurrection, Dara was inspired to educate others about the political and social issues facing our country. Her video commentaries have garnered widespread attention. Her TikTok and Instagram channels have over a million subscribers. And last year, she started the podcast, I'm All Over the Place, to take a deeper dive into the content she posts. Dara, welcome to Burn the Boats. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Ken. I am probably your biggest fan. I have been binge watching your YouTube shorts. I have a ton of questions, but I want to start with how you got into this. How did a professional jazz vocalist and songwriter get into political commentary? You know, I've always had something to say. I've always been a very outspoken, very opinionated sort of person. And music is what I was raised with. So it's, it's been a kind of a natural form of self-expression, but I always felt that it was a bit limiting, that I, I wanted to make commentary on what was happening in the culture. But, you know, I felt kind of uh, boxed in by the fact that I was a singer and that, you know, oh, people don't see me that way. People don't want to hear me talk about these things. They don't want to have their bubble burst about who, you know, whoever or whatever they think I am. And so I just kept quiet and I I really didn't have much of an outlet to express myself outside of music. But, um, you know, events of late uh, of the last four or five years have kind of created an an imperative for me and I think many others to get out there and start speaking out where they otherwise would not have. And so I, I, you know, I've, I've always felt like there was an audience out there for me. That's been my feeling. It's like there's an audience that it's there. They are there. They exist. I just need to find the way to connect with them. And so I just kind of started talking about what was on my mind, you know, and um, they've, they've slowly, slowly come, come on board. Are you finding that your, your musical background and your musical career right now is amplifying or at least informing the, the political side, the political messages you're trying to convey, or, or does sometimes it feel like it's holding you back? I, I read a, a quote of yours talking about, you know, growing up in the church and, and the, the self-censorship that you experienced in, in, your, in your music. How has that evolved with your political outspokenness? Well, how does being a musician inform the music? Well, you know, I was never really someone to put out a whole lot of uh, messaging about, you know, politics or race or culture, which are a lot of the things I talk about now. I was never really the one to include, incorporate those messages into my music before. My music is very personal or has been very personal up to this point. And uh, the last album that I did, not the current one that I have out, but the one before that I put out during the pandemic, and it was after all the, you know, the George Floyd killing and all, all of the protests and everything that broke out. So we wanted to do to do an album that kind of spoke to the, you know, the political zeitgeist uh, that was happening at the time. So that was really the first time that I put sort of that messaging in my music and, um, you know, allowed those worlds to merge a little bit because I had started speaking out online by the time I put that album out. So those worlds have been very separate up till now. The music has not influenced the the um, activism, nor has the activism influenced the music until 
very recently, and I'm enjoying kind of watching those worlds meld much more than they have in the past. January 6th was the catalyst for you. It was for a lot of us, but I'd love to get a sense of where your head was that day, watching it unfold, and then in the days and, and weeks afterwards, because I had my own evolution, uh, I want to talk about January 6th through the lens of race as well. What were you thinking as you saw it unfold and then as you had a little time to ponder it? I mean, I think I was probably like a lot of folks. I was just sitting there with my mouth hanging open. I, I you know, remember it vividly. It's just one of those events that you just, you're, we will carry with us for the rest of our lives, I think which is the crazy thing about seeing it being downplayed now is just, you know, people were just taking a tour and, you know, exercising their, you know, <laughs> First Amendment rights or whatever. I mean, you know, it, it just is crazy now to see it being flipped and being spun into something that it was not. We had watched this cauldron sort of boil to, you know, to the brim. We had all watched it. And we had seen, you know, the comments by Trump previous to that. We had seen him saying, you know, reporters had pointedly asked him, what will you do if you lose? You know, and he just could not fathom that concept. I remember seeing a, a rally of his where he literally said, you know, I, I, what if I lose? I don't know what I'm going to do if I lose. And, you know, I, I won't be able to stay in the country. You know, you guys got to come out for me. You got to, you could tell it was like, it was going to be such an affront to his ego. And we were all kind of preparing for the, like, dear God in heaven, what is about to happen? And I remember there was a reporter on MSNBC named Stephanie Rule, who the day of the election, and we were all, I mean, it was just, it was so tense on election day. The day of the election, she ended up in, she was just doing an announcement of like, hey, you know, it's election day and here's the polls are opening and blah, blah, blah. She cried. She broke down and cried. And I remember putting that in my, I might've put that on my TikTok. Might've been one of the first like slightly political things that I posted on my TikTok. But it, we, we, there was such a tension and we all knew what that boiling point, we didn't know quite how far it was gonna go, <laughs> but we knew that it was gonna come to a boiling point. We knew in our hearts and in our souls that there was something very ugly that was about to happen regardless of which way it went. So January 6th was just a culmination of all of that. It was a culmination of something that we, we had seen coming, I mean, all the way back in 2016, when the first election happened, we knew this was not going to go to a very good place. So it was just a material, it was a manifestation of something that was happening before our eyes that we, we knew was possible, but we did not, we had never seen in our lifetimes. And so just to see, you know, American patriots, and I'm putting that in quotation marks, uh, scaling the walls of the U.S. Capitol, it was so deeply disheartening. It was embarrassing. It was shocking. It was it was just, I was flabbergasted, absolutely flabbergasted. I just was, was there with my, my mouth absolutely hanging open in total disbelief at what I was seeing. The scariest thing for me is that on January 6th and in the immediate aftermath, we thought of it as some kind of culmination. I think you just used that word. We, we, we saw it as a, as a breaking point. Right. Um, even Republican leaders referred to it as a breaking point, but very quickly fell back in line. And we're at another, well, I can't even call it an inflection point because it seems like every time the former president reaches some limit and crosses it, the faithful fall back in line. He just threatened the Department of Justice. He said, if you come after me, I'm coming after you. Something that in a, in a previous political era would have been unconscionable. He would have been held accountable. And if, if January 6th was not 
an example of the fever breaking. I don't know that anything can break the fever. Do you have a, a more optimistic take? No, I don't necessarily. It is kind of that tipping point where, you know, almost the point where I hit after Sandy Hook happened, you know, with regard to the gun debate. I just, you know, there was something in me that just broke. It was like, well, if that wasn't enough to change the trajectory and to change the conversation and to bring, you know, folks to a more reasonable kind of meeting point around this issue, I don't know what is enough. I don't know what will be enough. If if, if 26 school children being, you know, slain isn't enough, then we may be past the point of, you know, where we can say this is salvageable. So I, I think we will get to a more reasonable point when we are past this particular chaos agent, because I don't think a lot of people have the ability to manipulate people to the degree that he does. I think a lot of people would do it if they could, but he is no less than a cult leader. We are experiencing and observing nothing less than a cult of personality, no different than Reverend Sun Young Moon or Jim Jones or, you know, or any of these dangerous, David Koresh, any of these dangerous cult leaders that we've observed who can take their followers, literally, they can take them off of a cliff with them if they wanted to. They could make them, you know, a, a Charles Manson type who could make people kill for him if he wanted to, who there is no limit to what these people will do for him. So that that probably is my only sense of relief or the, the reprieve that we might have from this, because I do feel like a lot of the extremism that we are viewing right now is centered around a very specific figure. It is very much a cult of personality. So when the personality is no longer here or is no longer able to gain the kind of power that he wants, then you know a, a part of that will will dissipate. But doesn't absolve any of these folks of their culpability in, in going along with just this truly reprehensible behavior. I agree. And I have actually come around on this. I used to talk a lot about Trumpism writ large, and it's a phenomenon. It exists apart from Trump himself, and it is dangerous, and it will outlast Trump. But there is no other figure on the right today that can marshal the kind of cult following that he can. You know, there was talk not too long ago of Ron DeSantis being the heir apparent and arguably more dangerous because he was more proficient, more capable. But no one is going to beat a cop to death for Ron DeSantis, right? They'll do it for Trump. They've tried to do it for Trump. They've done it for Trump. Uh, and he's a singular figure in that regard. After January 6th, there was so much commentary focusing on the racial aspects of that insurrection, but it was largely, at least as I observed it, white people in their silos uh, talking about race, uh, others in their silos talking about race. And you have said that a lot of the conversation with regard to January 6th around race needs to be contextualized. Your show does an amazing job of that. And I'm wondering if you are hearing from white people whose eyes you're opening to the, to the racial aspects of what we're going through that they're not otherwise appreciating. Oh, yeah. I have been able to have more conversations in the last couple of years with white folks around the issue of race than I ever have before. And that's that's one of the heartening things for me in this entire process is that I feel like there are more and more non-Black people who are willing to have these conversations and who are deeply interested 
in having these conversations and who can understand now that there is an enormous racial subtext to what we are experiencing now in in the United States, uh, politically, socially, culturally, more white people than have than, than there have ever been. Because I, I grew up around a whole lot of white folks, and these conversations were always something that they would avoid, and they were always something that was very uncomfortable, and they would want to gloss over with, well, you know. I don't see race. I don't see color. It's just not important to me. And, you know, I just love everyone equally. I don't care if you're red, brown, yellow, purple, green, or polka dot, you know, we're all equal and we all bleed the same blood. You know, you hear these lines over and over and over again. And I think for them, it's something that maybe was supposed to come off as as, as reassuring, as comforting, as, you know, well, they're, you know, they're safe. This is a safe person. But, you know, those of us who, who walk around in these bodies of color, we know what we experience every day and, and we have to look at life through a different lens. And so, you know, that sort of lip service doesn't really hold much water. It, it really doesn't matter very much to us because our reality is, is really quite different. So I'm seeing some very different conversations <laughs> that have started to happen, you know, in this age of the age of Trump really is, is the era that we're in. Um, particularly though, since 2020, the the conversation has really shifted, and and I'm I'm glad for it. What is the biggest barrier in your experience to starting those conversations? Is it just proximity, being around people that encourage you to have those conversations? Is it the fear of both sides to engage? What are you encountering? Um, what well, what is white folks' fear of having those conversations? Is that sure? The let's start there because <laughs> <laughs> black folks have been having. We- <laughs> I'll put my priors on the table. I mean, that was how you described, you know, this this atmosphere in in which you're taught not to or to say you don't see race, and you know, spending my formative years in in Montgomery, Alabama, going to public school, it was something you you avoided, right? Except. Yeah. Our um, rival schools were Robert E. Lee High School and Jefferson Davis High School. I was lucky enough to go to Sydney Lanier High School. Um, But that was, you know, the environment. As far as I know, it's still Jeff Davis and Robert E. Lee High School. I live in Ohio now, so we know a little better. But you just avoided it. Right. Absolutely. It was there was definitely a lot of avoidance. I mean, that was definitely the the flavor of the day in in my childhood and in younger years. A lot of folks just avoided the conversation and kind of covered themselves, as I said, in the cloak of, you know, I don't see color. I don't see race, which is really a very deeply dismissive. I would say at the very least, it's a dismissive statement to make to a black person or someone who has has experienced um, the effects of, of racism in this in this country, in this world. But the aversion, I think, you know, if I can just be frank with a lot of folks, a lot of white folks, the way that you are socialized, many of you are socialized, is around this idea of of decorum and politeness over everything. You know, we're just going to, we're going to comport ourselves in this specific way. And that in itself is a basis for uh, morality and for virtue. Our virtue is our politeness. And so I think, you know, there are groups like, you know, the KKK or whatever, neo-Nazis and skinheads and, you know, groups that are overtly racist that can come off as an, as an affront to a lot of white folks' uh, sense of, of virtue and morality. It's like, well, we don't put it out there like that. You know, that's just, that's impolite. That's, that's, uh, that's vulgar. 
And so they are as offended by overt racism as they are by anything because it is impolite and it is, it is not, it's just not decent. It's not what, you know, the, the kind of discourse that decent people engage in. So I think in, you know, confronting racism and having those really difficult conversations around race is just, it's just, you know, it feels indecent to a lot of white folks to have, whereas being, you know, being raised in a black family, we were sort of having those conversations privately all the time. It was just a part, it was a natural part of the way that we were socialized. So I think a lot of white folks really have to push past that sense of like, oh, you know, there's an electric fence that they just, they bump up against and, and even having the conversation or calling themselves white or saying, you know, just identifying someone by their color that in and of itself feels racist. And I get a lot of white folks in my comments section that want to push back against what I have to say, not because I'm saying anything that's horribly racist or biased against anyone, but because I'm saying, you know, a white man did this. And when he did this, then a black man responded in this way. It's like, well, you're the racist. You're the one that's talking about race. And, you know, you see that sort of knee jerk response all the time from white folks where they feel that they get to name what is and is not racist based on the fact that uh, the person speaking is being a, a bit vulgar, you know, in their discussion, in their frank discussion of race. So I, I think that's probably the fundamental blockade that we have, you know, in addition to some deeper issues of just not wanting to confront some of the realities that exist, you know, because they don't, they don't make you feel good about yourself. You've been told a different story. We've been handled with kid gloves. Most white folks have been handled with kid gloves around this issue of race all their lives. They have never had to really confront it at all. And so when, when they have to, when they're forced to, um, it feels like, you know, someone is, is doing them a, doing a, a wrong or, or committing an offense against them. Hi, Burn the Boats fans. I want to take a quick break to talk about our sponsor for today's show, Roan. Men's closets are long overdue for a radical reinvention, and Roan has stepped up to the challenge. Roan's commuter collection represents the most comfortable, breathable, and flexible clothes I've ever found. Roan makes it so easy to get ready for any occasion. The commuter collection offers the world's most comfortable pants, dress shirts, quarter zips, and polos. Roan's comfortable four-way stretch fabric provides breathability and flexibility that leaves you free to enjoy whatever life throws your way, from your commute to work to weekends at the kids' ballgames. Looking good is easy with Roan's wrinkle release technology, which makes wrinkles magically disappear seriously as you wear the products. It's really that easy. I don't have time between work and family and everything in between to worry about dry cleaning or ironing with Roan, I don't have to. I just wear and go. And I feel great doing it. Even after a long day, Roan feels clean and new and just as comfortable as the moment I put it on. You got to try it out. Head to roan.com slash boats and use promo code boats to save 20% off your entire order. That's 20% off your entire order when you had to R-H-O-N-E dot com slash boats and use code boats. Trust me, Roan makes choosing what to wear not just easy, but classy and comfortable. That's Roan.com slash boats. Staying healthy, especially when you have a family that you want to be able to spend as much time with as possible is so important. We all have a heartfelt reason to support our blood pressure. In fact, 
more than half the U.S. population would benefit from blood pressure support. Superbeats Heart Chews are an easy and convenient way to support healthy blood pressure, and they promote heart-healthy energy. Paired with a healthy lifestyle, the antioxidants in Superbeats are clinically shown to be nearly two times more effective at promoting normal blood pressure than a healthy lifestyle alone. And with over 30,000 five-star reviews and counting, Superbeats Heart Chews are having their moment. Superbeats Heart Chews are delicious and so much better than any alternative supplement out there. Superbeats Heart Chews are effective and clinically studied. They are the number one pharmacist-recommended beet brand for cardiovascular health support. It's blood pressure support you can trust. Double your potential with Superbeats Heart Chews. Get a free 30-day supply of Superbeats Heart Chews and 15% off your first order by going to getsuperbeats.com and using promo code BOATS. That's getsuperbeats.com, code BOATS. Well, that coddling of white sensibilities starts very, very early. It did with me, and I'm looking now. We just did a quick hit on the curricula that's been approved for some Florida elementary schools that includes Prager University really oh. propaganda videos. Uh, I'll, I'll roll some of them at the beginning of this interview that say things like, you know, it's better be taken as a slave than killed, right? Or have Frederick Douglass implicitly criticizing Black Lives Matter. I mean, it's it's just insane stuff. And it's literally cartoonized, literally cartoonized so that it is that much more ingestible by children. The politeness disease starts really early. Yeah, it really does. And it, and it is, it's a disease. I think you name it correctly. It's just, you know, you gotta be willing to shed that skin. I, I follow, I'm a new follower of a lady on Instagram. I think she does TikTok as well, but she's an, I don't remember her exact handle, but she's an anti-racism educator. And you can tell she's just that she's an older lady, older white lady who's confronting that very thing of just like, look, we have been handled with kid gloves over this thing all our lives and a, a lot of the anti-racism education for us is just in stripping away that expectation that we should be treated tenderly around this. And we've got to be able to have frank and real conversations because other people are experiencing real life consequences as a result of our ignorance. So our ignorance is the issue and we, we have to wake up and shake ourselves and start to have some difficult conversations, which is, you know, that's a hard sell when you are let's say a white guy who lives in, in Topeka, Kansas or whatever, that may not even be the whitest place. I'll say Franklin, Tennessee, because I know something about Franklin, Tennessee. You know, you're a white guy in Franklin, Tennessee. You don't have to confront this stuff. You can put the blinders on and you can pretend that it really doesn't exist. There is no real incentive for you to address this stuff head on. So, you know, my hat's off to, to the white folks who do, who choose to be, and they don't have to. They do not necessarily have to have these conversations. But I encounter those folks every day. And I'm, I'm really thankful that they're willing to have those conversations because there is, we cannot make progress unless we have a large contingency of white folks who are willing to speak out and do what you're doing and facilitate conversations and talk to other white people. Because there are people who will listen to you that will shut down if they see me, if they see a black woman talking about this stuff, you know, immediately dismissal. You know, oh, please, they just, you know, they don't do anything but complain. But they see a white dude with an American flag behind them talking about it. 
And it's it's going to come off a little bit differently to some folks. That's going to be my new handle, uh, white dude with American flag. Um, it's it's intentional, and I'm I'm glad you appreciate the <laughs> the subtext. Um, your your podcast does a masterful job at making that case at breaking down barriers. I especially love your latest series on uh, try that in a small town. Can you talk a little bit about what prompted that? Oh well, well I think we all know what prompted it. I mean, it's been the talk of the town for a long time. Uh, speaking of Franklin, Tennessee. Was the courthouse Franklin or Columbia? Oh, Columbia. Yeah. Okay. I believe okay. Aldine likely lives in Franklin, Tennessee. Um, right. a, lot of, a lot of the folks that are associated with producing that song and video, I'm sure, are residents of Franklin, Tennessee. And it's a suburb of Nashville, uh, for those who may not know. I lived in Nashville for 13 years. And so I got to experience a lot of that kind of mindset of just these good old boys who are, you know, they're, they're cosmopolitan enough that they're not, you know, they're not running around, around with a you know piece of straw coming out of their teeth or anything like that. So they feel that they're worldly enough where, you know, they, they're not the ones who need to be addressed. They're not the ones who have issues with race. You know, they know skinheads, they know people who are overtly just awfully racist. And so that's a lot of what I encountered in Nashville, honestly. So yeah, Jason Aldean made a song called Try That in a Small Town, where it was basically, you know, taking a lot of the behaviors uh, that that we wit or that a lot of Fox News viewers witnessed around the George Floyd uh, protests, the Black Lives Matter protests. And he took all of that and put it in a music video showing people spinning, you know, it turns out this is all like stock footage or stuff from the UK or, or Russia, Belarus, and Canada. It's not even American footage. But he put all of this footage into a music video and talked about spitting in cops' faces and disrespecting the flag. And, you know, don't come and try that in a small town because this is, you know, we're going to run you out. We're going we're gonna to do this and we're going to do that. And I have my granddaddy's shotgun. And, you know, then he starts to evoke, a lot of this language starts to evoke some imagery and some some stuff around the, the the sundown towns that have existed in the south for a long time and in the south and beyond for a long time then claimed that he did not do this intentionally that there was no racial subtext um, to any of this which is is untrue and then it turns out that he filmed a music video in front of a, a famous lynching site in Columbia Tennessee a, a courthouse where where a man was lynched and where a race massacre or whatever happened many years ago in Tennessee so I, you know, I did a response video to it. And honestly, I felt like, I don't know if you saw my original uh, video on it, where I said, this is the problem that I have with this video with, that Jason Aldean did. And I haven't even looked at the comments on YouTube nor Facebook because they are, you know, the few that I saw were just atrocious. You know, there was such a backlash against folks who had anything to say about this song and video. But I felt like, and I got a lot of flack from from black folks, honestly, and, and from white folks too. Some some enlightened white folks for saying that I I didn't go far enough in my video response about this. That I said I was willing to give Jason Aldean and his team the benefit of the doubt that maybe, just maybe, possibly, they did not know the history of this courthouse, and that that really wasn't the issue. That they intentionally or unintentional, whatever, that they intentionally did this. I said, this is the, this is the problem with, with race in this country is because we're not having enough of these difficult conversations. And his, his inner circle clearly is not diverse enough where anyone would be saying, hey, did you know that this happened here? And maybe this is not the best idea that you do this video here. They're not having those conversations. But I got a lot of flack from people for saying, you know, that maybe he didn't know that. But it's my honest belief that he himself 
probably did not realize where he was filming that video. And at no point did I even say explicitly that it was racist. At no point did I say it was racist. I said it evoked um, images of, of, of uh, lynching. It, it was it was definitely referencing, you know, a mentality around lynching. And, you know, obviously we know what a lot of the roots of that are. But there was so much backlash from that video. So I decided to do a three-part series um, called Stuff You Could Try in a Small Town. Since the song's called Try That in a Small Town, it's like, okay, let's talk about small town America. And, you know, I went through and talked about opioid addiction and suicide rates and maternal death rates and towns that have run Black people completely out for 75 years and have uh, had school segregation even up until this day. And all kinds of issues that arise in small towns that we don't want to have conversations about. We just want to have this sort of idealized Andy Griffith, you know, I've been watching the Waltons lately. And so that's on my mind. You know, the Waltons are on my mind. I'm like, white America has this idealized vision of itself. It has this idealized version of what it actually is. And it usually does not involve its treatment of the black community, of the immigrant community, of the gay community. It does not involve, you know, and how it has treated women historically, it does not involve, you know, any, any reference to these, these groups that have been historically marginalized. And, and, you know, those effects are so much worse oftentimes in small towns. And so I, I felt like it was time to have a conversation about that. So that's, that's exactly what I did. Well, thank you for, for provoking that conversation. We did a, a short piece before Jason Aldean's song came out on New Bern, Alabama. Uh, it's got hundreds of thousands of views now. This is a town just west of Montgomery, down Highway 80, where I went to high school. 75 to 85% Black community that has never had a Black mayor. Uh, Google, and this is for the listeners, Google Patrick Braxton was elected the last Black mayor of New Bern. They locked the doors of City Hall. They refused to give him the the town's mail. They closed the bank account. You mentioned the term sundown town. Uh, I think a lot of my friends up here in Ohio aren't going to know what you mean, but in the deep South, that is still a thing. And it was very much a thing in that halcyon period that Jason Aldean is hearkening back to, which wasn't that great if you were a black person in the deep South after dark. What's a sundown town? Yeah, Sundown Town is a place where it is known and understood and oftentimes communicated that Black people are not welcome after dark. If you are a Black person and you are in this county after dark, beware because we're coming after you. You better get out of here before the sun goes down. And so I am 100% sure that Jason Aldean knows what a freaking Sundown Town is and that those writers of that song know what a Sundown Town is. And these towns exist. It's, it's not only in the South. I mean, or Oregon, I, I really would like to do a thing on Oregon and, and how how much history there is there around these types of towns. There are, there are many sundown towns in, still in Oregon and in many other places outside of the South. I mean, in, in rural America, period. So, yeah, I mean, we have things like the Green Book that existed where, you know, Black folks had to create a special book where if they were traveling through the South, they knew what venues and what restaurants and what hotels were actually welcoming and open to Black people because you could be kicked out or, or lynched or you know beat up or threatened or terrorized if you ended up in the wrong place. So there had to be a book called The Green Book to tell Black folks, like, this is, this is where you're safe and these are the places that you need to avoid. 
a lot of this history was very much being referenced in that in that video and, and song. Where do you get your ideas for your hits? Do they just come to you or are people telling you, you got to cover this? Yeah, generally, it's just just things that I encounter from, you know, media that I'm observing or conversations that I'm having. I'm learning now more and more to listen to people in my comments section when they say, hey, have you talked about this thing? Uh, because then I know where people's heads are, because I, I tend to get off sometimes into into little cubby holes. And, you know, I could have stayed with that small town series, try this, you know, things you could try in a small town. I could stay with something like that forever. I could have stayed, you know, on Civil War history forever, or I could burrow in and do, you know, a deep dive history of, of classic television. I did one thing on, a, you know, the Dick Van Dyke show and something on the I Love Lucy show and, and Star Trek, because those are my particular areas of interest. And so I, I have to remind myself to kind of step back from that, you know, get out of my little, you know, narrow, myopic point of view and actually listen to what people have to say. But oftentimes I'll be, you know, I'll just be observing something, you know, something I'm watching or conversation that I'm having. And it'll be like, wow, you know, I wonder about this thing. You know, let me let me do a little bit of a deep dive on that and see if there's any kind of any information to be mined from that. And so, yeah, generally it's just me and, and my curiosity. But I, I'm, I'm starting to listen just a little bit more to people in the in the comments. The Civil War stuff was great. I hope you got awesome comments on that. And I hope you revisit it because there's just, especially having, you know, grown up in the South, there is this nostalgia that is really manufactured. And, yes. you know, it was a political movement long after the Civil War ended. You highlight that with the story of the the freeway flags. Can you give us the short version of these things, which I think people assume, you know, have been up ever since 1865. No, they were they were a political signal in the 20s and later. Right. Yeah. The the Confederate flags, which I always get so much flack for calling them Confederate flags. I call them Confederate battle flags. And I still have people, battle flags. Yeah. In the comment section, going, well, you know, that's the flag of, you know, and they never have the right flag. I think it's it was converted from the battle flag of Virginia um, and then brought on to represent uh, the Confederacy in general. But yeah, these flags and monuments started to pop up kind of in the, in the you know, after the Civil War as a way of basically saying, hey, you know, the South will rise again. That's, that's the attitude there. And, you know, the groups like the Sons of Confederate Veterans and the Daughters of, of the Confederacy are responsible for erecting a lot of these monuments, monuments that still existed in Nashville when I moved there in the, in the middle 2000s. Monuments that were in state houses and, you know, all along freeways and things like that, uh, public parks and things. The Daughters of, of the Confederacy got in and, and, and worked with education departments to change the, the curriculum to reflect a certain mentality around the Civil War. It's like, hey, we didn't really lose. And this was a war of northern aggression and this sort of lost cause thinking. It's all been very deliberate. And this stuff really wrote, you know, really started to spring up in the, in the early part of the, the um, 20th century. A lot of these monuments started to spring up at that time when the, when the KKK, the second iteration of the KKK, was gaining, you know, relevance. Then, of course, when the civil rights movement happened, the hundredth anniversary of the Civil War, a ton more monuments sprung up, Confederate monuments. And then, uh, in the sesquicentennial, the hundred and fiftieth anniversary, which happened in twenty eleven, then you had a whole, you know, whole other push from the Sons of Confederate Veterans, and a group called the Flaggers, who started putting up a ton of these things off freeways. I mean, massive, like hundred foot, <laughs> sixty foot flags off of freeways, you know, 
and and they are well funded. You know, there are there are groups who have you know secret private memberships and meetings and. And they're paying for these things to be erected as as a real kind of, you know, F you to anyone who claims that there's been any progress in these areas. They're going to remind you who they are. And all in honor of a political movement that lasted, I don't know if this is your observation or someone else's, that did not last as long as Grey's Anatomy. Oh, yeah. I said it lasted a, a fourth the length of the Grey's Anatomy series. <laughs> my my uh, daughter loved that. <laughs> 150 years later, we're still commemorating something that lasted literally, you know, four or five years. But yeah, it's it's more, you know, as I said in that piece, it's more about, it's not so much about commemorating the dead, which they would like to convince you of, but we're just honoring our dead. Like, no, 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 no. you're honoring what they fought for which is the right to uh, continue. And, and the Confederate Constitution specifically laid out their right to preserve Negro slavery, not just the concept of slavery in and of itself, but the right to enslave Negroes. So I think that, you know, I think a lot of this stuff, honestly, the people perpetuating this stuff and waving Confederate flags and things, they don't know their own history. Because as I said in that piece, these people were very open about what they were doing at the time. You know, the, if you read the articles of secession for, you know, Texas and uh, South Carolina and states like that, Mississippi states like that, it, it was all about slavery. It was all about being able to preserve specifically Negro slavery. And they were not secret about it. They were not trying to hide their motivations or couch it in states' rights or taxation or anything like that. They wanted you to know exactly why they were doing what they were doing. So a lot of these people are just, I think they're just ignorant of their own history because it's been taught to them in a very specific way. And again, they've been coddled and, and just have not had to come outside of that bubble. And they're just wanting to preserve this, this, this concept of themselves that, that really is, is, is a false one. Which is why these latest efforts, and I'll point to Florida again, to really brainwash children about our history are are so alarming. We see the effects of that. We have historical lessons to point to as to what happens when you don't confront the reality of, of your history. And it, it never ends well. And seeing it happen again or continue to happen in Florida, I mean, it should be sending off alarm bells everywhere. Yeah, it's endemic of the kind of just willful ignorance that we have perpetuated in this country for far too long. And I think it's a real, it's a, just a telling thing that many people outside of the U.S., they know our history better than, than we do, oftentimes. And it's an embarrassing thing to encounter someone who is not, you know, American, and they're telling you basic things about American history that we don't really understand ourselves because we have just, we've been, you know, wrapped in, in bubble wrap and, and have not been required to know just basic things because, oh, it's going to hurt, you know, little, I think Ron DeSantis literally said at one point that, that these white school children just don't, they don't need to feel bad about themselves, that you're going to make them feel bad. So you're, you're telling them that their ancestors were, were racist and that they, you know, white people have been racist. No, they're going to they're grow up with a complex. So, you know, don't tell them things like that. So I, you know, I don't know. I, I don't have any answers as to why this deep ignorance and dedication to ignorance persists. But I think with educators like myself and, and many others who are doing the same kind of work, online, you know, in spaces like TikTok and Instagram, I think uh, if you want real history, there, it's at the point now where there's not really an excuse for you for you not to have real history. You know, school is not the only place where you can, you can learn. 
I'm glad you said that uh, because I that's where I land when I hear you, and I appreciate this too. When you give Jason Aldean and his team a kind of a pass for saying they're probably more ignorant than racist, there really is still not a good excuse for that kind of ignorance in in this day and age. There's not. And I, you know, to be clear, I the, I do feel that the video is racist. I just don't necessarily feel that they realize how deeply racist it was, you know, in, in filming it where they filmed it. I feel like they meant to say what they what they said. And it, there was very much a racial subtext, but they I don't think they necessarily realized that where they were doing it was was telling an even bigger story than what they than what they knew they were telling. But yeah, the 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 ignorance is willful at this point. Because there's, there's, and even, you know, in a case like his, when you realize what you've done, oh, hey, did you know that you filmed this video about essentially lynching and sundown towns? Did you know that you filmed this in front of a famous lynching site? Okay, now what's his response? That's the question. Like once he finds out that he did that, is there an apology? Is there an effort to say, oh my goodness, you know, what a faux pas, what, how, what an awful thing to have happened. We didn't realize we were being so insensitive. Please forgive us. Please excuse us you know, we'll take the video down. There was none of that. And so that to me speaks even more loudly about the motivations for what he was doing. He just played into his his base that much more and like, hey, you know, we're Americans. And, you know, the, the quote that he put out there was just utterly ridiculous. Like, hey, well, this is just all about small town people just taking care of each other, looking out for one another, you know, as painting this sort of Mayberry idyllic picture where you're talking about going and getting your granddaddy's gun and and shooting somebody and running them out of town it just there's there's a disconnect in what he feels that he's saying and what he actually is saying that mo of never back down never apologize never empathize that feels like a, a new thing like we have been taught that top down in observing our political leaders there used to be such a thing as a shame in public life. And if the Jason Aldean episode had happened a decade ago or 20 years ago, more often than not, it could be a learning, a teaching moment. And I just feel like there is a shamelessness on the right these days that has, that has been learned. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, maybe it's too simple an answer, but I I do blame the era of Trump for that because I think he's been a huge example in how that strategy can be a winning one. You just, you double down, you get even tougher, you get even louder, you get even more obstinate and in your face about it. And you don't apologize. You don't give one ounce of ground. You don't retreat, you don't surrender. And I think, you know, a lot of folks have picked up that M.O., and they have figured out that it's a it's a winning strategy and it works and it makes them feel more empowered. It makes them look stronger. And so there's there's no downside to them for for doubling down on something like that. What are you working on next? Can you give us a, a preview of anything in the pipeline? Oh, goodness. I have so many things in the pipeline. I announced a while back that I was doing a series on toxic conservatism. And a lot of the videos that I have done since then have, you know, kind of tangentially related to that. But I really want to kind of dig into that and start doing some pieces on folks like Ronald Reagan and just kind of, you know, getting into just really deeply understanding, like, why do so many people dislike this man? You know, he is celebrated in right wing circles as the great communicator. And he's just seen as like this, you know, even Trump is, is modeled himself. His slogan, Make America Great Again, is, mo- is, is Reagan's slogan. And, you know, the right idolizes him. 
but the left detests him. Why? Why is he such, you know, this figure of, of uh, disdain by so many people? And his history is deep. I mean, it's just, it's really just- And conflicted. It's really interesting. It is. And you know who else's history is very conflicted? Richard Nixon's. Richard Nixon, who, who founded the EPA, Environmental Protection Agency, and who was also the one who went after these segregation academies, I said in one of those, uh, those uh, small town videos. You know, he's, he's another one who's really hard to understand, Lyndon Johnson as well. But getting into some of those figures and people like Phyllis Schlafly, you know, who were activists, who uh, she campaigned against the Equal Rights Amendment, you know, for women. This is a, a woman who was the champion against equal rights for women, you know, and the John Birch Society and Moms for Liberty and groups like this. And, you know, I, I am conflicted a little bit on, you know, how much of my attention to focus on, these groups that really, in, in my estimation, worked to uphold a form of white supremacy and how much to really highlight the good that I feel like a lot of Black folks have done and have, you know, gotten out there and Black folks who have fought against this stuff, you know, and there are so many figures that I could be highlighting within the Black community, you know, and even Native, the Native community, which I want to talk about more. So I'm, I'm working on finding a balance between the two because I don't, want my, you know, online presence to be all about like, you know, hey, let's talk about, you know, this awful person who did this awful thing. And, you know, let's also celebrate the good. And so, you know, I'm, I'm also working on some stuff that covers a lot of the film and television and the music that I love, which is usually classic stuff, you know, from the 40s, 50s, 60s and 70s and stuff. So I'm, as my podcast says, I am all over the place. I'm working on probably 10 different, 10 different projects right now. Well, I can't wait to see what you come out with next. Thank you so much, Dara, for joining us today. Thank you, Ken. I've, I've enjoyed myself. Thank you so much for having me on. Thanks again to Dara for joining me. Make sure to check out her podcast. I'm all over the place. You can find Dara on TikTok at Dara Star Tucker. Thanks for listening to Burn the Boats. If you have any feedback, please email the team at kharbaugh at evergreenpodcasts.com. We're always looking to improve the show. For updates and more, follow us on Twitter at team underscore Harbaugh. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. Burn the Boats is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Our producer is Declan Roars, and Sean Ruloffman is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers, Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. sadly been known as the Forgotten War, but half a century earlier, the United States was locked in a bloody conflict in Asia that's been all but erased from the history books. Hi, I'm Alex Hasty, the host of Ohio vs. the World, an American history podcast on the Evergreen Podcast Network. In our newest episode, we speak to experts about the Philippine-American War, America's first Asian counterinsurgency conflict. The heroes, the villains, will discuss President McKinley, Admiral Dewey, the vicious brutality of the fighting, and the scandals and war crimes that nearly sunk Theodore Roosevelt's presidency. Check out our show, Ohio vs. the World, on the Evergreen Podcast Network for our new episode about America's most forgotten war. Now back to the show. This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.